This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of the Heartland Daily Podcast, a special uh, education edition of the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And uh, like I said, this is a special edition of the Heartland Daily Podcast. And, you know, obviously, if, <clears throat> if you like this podcast, make sure you give the Heartland Daily Podcast a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, this is the uh, best way to support programming like this. And like I said, we have a Special uh, education podcast today. You don't normally do a lot of education uh, stuff on the Heartland Daily Podcast anymore, but uh, uh, but we got a special guest today, and uh, our guest is Mr. Donald P. Nielsen, and Mr. Nielsen is a senior fellow of Discovery Institute and chairman of the Institute's American Center for Transforming Education. He was also, at one time, co-founder, president, and chairman of Hazelton Corporation, the world's largest contract biological and chemical research and testing company. And he also serves on the advisory board of the University of Washington Foster School of Business and is an emeritus member of the ambassador board of the University of Washington School of Education. And uh, during his business career, uh, Mr. Nielsen served on numerous corporate and nonprofit boards, including Delta Dental of Washington, Teach First, VWR Scientific, Junior Achievement, the YMCA, the Alliance for Education, the Seattle Foundation, Islandwood, and the Tolaris Institute. And he also served nine years as a trustee of Seattle Pacific University and eight years on the Seattle Public Schools Board, including as president of said board in 2000 and 2001. So he's here with us to discuss the public education system in general and to talk about his book, which is titled Every School, One Citizen's Guide to Transforming Education. So, uh, Mr. Nielsen, uh, thank you once again for uh, coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure, Tim. It's nice to be with you this morning, and you can refer to me as Don if you'd like. We'll be informal here this <laughs> All right, morning. You got it. Um, okay. So, first things first, I guess. Uh, I guess tell everybody, uh, you know, why, how, and why you got into education reform, and then. Um, you know, what was uh, what made you want to write this book? You know, what was the genesis of it? Okay, well, perfectly. Well, um, I was uh, an entrepreneur, and I'm I'm I tell young people uh, I'm the closest thing you will ever meet to the American dream because uh, my parents were immigrants from Denmark. I myself am an immigrant from Canada, and. Uh, um, I was able to start a company in the basement of an A&P store and take it to the New York Stock Exchange. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't almost get any better than that. And uh, I, uh, we, we got on the New York Stock Exchange and then we sold our company. And so by the time I was in my early 50s, uh, I had made more money than I thought I'd ever need, and uh, I didn't think I needed to do it again. My wife and I were going to live very comfortably the rest of our life. And so what do you do with the rest of your life at that age? And I picked public education as the area in which I would spend my time and my focus. 
And there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, my eldest daughter went through K-12 uh, public schools all the way through, got an excellent education. My son has ADHD and uh, 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 dyslexia uh, and did not do as well. And uh, we pulled him out and put him in private school when he was in high school. And then my youngest daughter uh, became quite ill with uh, eating disorders when she was just going into puberty, and we had to take her out of school and put her in private schools over the years. And uh, it, and then I looked at the people we were hiring in our company, and many of whom were uh, even even had been graduated from high school and had even had two-year certificates from community colleges, and they could hardly read. They certainly couldn't write very well. Uh, they were not articulate. I, th- I mean, they had really not become terribly well-educated. Uh, And then I served on Junior Achievement Board for many years back in Washington, D.C., where my my business was based. Um, And uh, I could see in the schools that I taught in, uh, high schools, where the kids were not getting a very good education, weren't motivated. And uh, I just felt like, you know, we're just not meeting the needs of our children uh, in the education system. So I picked public education as the place where I'd spend my time. And uh, kind of a funny sidebar, um, my wife asked me one night, what are you going to do in public education? I said, I don't have a clue. I'm just going to try to make a difference somehow. (laughs) And uh, so the very first phone call I made was to a guy named Lamar Alexander. Mm -hmm. Now, my home was in northern Virginia, uh, and his office at the time, he had been recently appointed by Bush number one to be the secretary of education. And his office was about 20 minutes from my home. And so I thought, thought, what the heck, I'm going to call him. And if I can get in, great. If I can't, it's okay. You know, all they can do is say no. Right. So I got in. I, I called his office. His assistant uh, talked to me for a few minutes and put me right through. And uh, I, he agreed to see me, and I went down to see him. And uh, Lamar turned out to be much more of a politician than an educator, uh, but he was very gracious, and uh, he introduced me to a guy named David Kearns, who had been the CEO of Xerox and was now the Deputy Secretary of Education. And David and I hit it off. Um, I subsequently had, I think, two or three lunches with him over the next 18 months. But from that conversation with David, and he introduced me to some people in the uh, in the department, but each person I talked to was also very informative, but each, almost without exception, they would suggest, you know, Don, you ought to talk to somebody, just so-and-so, somebody else you ought to talk to. And so every person that I was suggested to talk to, I would go talk to. And initially, the first six months, uh, they were in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I met with the chairs of the House and Senate uh, Education Committees, I met with the president of the Catholic Schools Association, the president of the two national unions, the NEA and the EFT, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the National Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, all the think tank people that were based in Washington that dealt with education I talked to. But pretty soon, so-and-so was someplace else. And so over the next 18 months, I visited 19 states. I visited probably 100 schools. I visited two dozen education colleges. I met with five governors. Um, And I came home one night uh, telling my wife, you know, I think I'm getting smart enough to be dangerous. 
because um, I really learned a lot. And um, and from uh, and at that time, my wife and I had decided uh, we were living in Northern Virginia, and uh, uh, we had always wanted to go back to Seattle, which is where we're from. And um, my parents were elderly, and her mother uh, was by herself, and and uh, and my my brother was dying. So there was good and valid reasons for me to get home, or for us to get home. And so the uh, there the, the the move to Seattle was also predicated on another uh, decision I made, and that was that uh, as a result of my travels around the country. I came to two conclusions. One conclusion was you had to get inside the system to make a difference. Um, and I came to that conclusion because no matter where I went, uh, from California to Maine, from Texas to Florida to Chicago, didn't matter. There were thousands and thousands of people doing their level best to improve their schools and, frankly, to no avail. So I concluded you had to get inside the system. And... Uh, uh, we wanted to live in Seattle, so by definition then, I was going to try to get inside the system of the Seattle public schools. And, uh, of course, you find out that someone like me, um, who's been a CEO of a New York Stock Exchange company, but I can't, but I'm not qualified to teach right, right. in a public school. Um, and I'm not qualified to be a principal, and I'm not going to qualify to be a superintendent. So the only entry point for someone like me was the school board. And so uh, when we moved back to Seattle, I ran for the school board, and uh, I made certain that I won. I really put through, a, you know, a campaign that people hadn't recognized for school board before because I was bound and determined to win because I had an agenda. I knew exactly, based on my travels, what I wanted to do with Seattle Public Schools. And uh, I got elected, and I spent the next eight years um, and over those eight years, one of the first things uh, we did, and the first item on my agenda, was to get a new superintendent. Um, and the rationale behind that was the fact that the existing superintendent, who was a wonderful man, a strong Christian guy, I liked him very much, but he'd been there 11 years. And so if he was going to do anything meaningful for Seattle Public Schools, he'd have done, done it. Right, now. right, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's obvious to me we needed a new leader. Um, and during my travels, one of the things that I learned was that public education can work. Um, there's no question it can work um, because I was able to walk into and visit schools that you'd kill to have your kids go to. And they were everywhere. I mean, every, virtually every urban system had at least one or two just truly outstanding schools. And the one common denominator of these schools was a, a truly gifted principal. Uh, and it didn't matter if she, he was male or female, black or white, didn't matter. Uh, but if they were an authentic leader, uh, they got things done. And most of these principals uh, broke a lot of rules in mm -hmm. order to create the kinds of schools they wanted. They couldn't do it within the existing uh, constraints. Uh, but they were remarkable people. And I, I met some wonderful, wonderful educators. But then the question was, okay, so we can have excellent schools here and there. Is there any place in the country, anywhere, where every school in a district is excellent? And the answer in 19, early 90s, uh, early 90s was no. And I'm sorry to say that probably the answer is still no. Um, and that's, that's a travesty. 
Um, so my goal in life was to transform the Seattle Public Schools. And the only way to do that was to get a new leader. Um, and I could tell my colleagues unequivocally that the leader we're looking for is not in public education. Because had they been there, I'd have found them. Um, and so we hired a business search firm, not an education search firm. And we ended up hiring a retired major general from the United States Army to become our superintendent. Uh, a fellow named John Stanford. He was an African-American guy, and he was by de- by far the most charismatic, effective, dynamic leader I have ever met before or since. And he came into Seattle like a man on a white horse. Um, and with his leadership and his charisma, we were able to get things done that would never have happened if it wasn't for him. And we transformed the Seattle Public Schools. We put in choice. We changed the funding model. We added. Uh, we made the curriculum stronger. We did all kinds of stuff. And we were on a roll. Uh, and things were happening. Uh, dropout rates were declining. Academic achievement was increasing. We were getting national press, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I got off the board. In two, well, John. First of all, John Stanford died about three years after we hired him, and he, he contracted uh, myelogenous leukemia, and we attribute that to exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. At any rate, he died. And uh, so the balloon burst in Seattle when he did, and uh, uh, I, we, we continued on our agenda, but it wasn't the same. Um, and then uh, I got off the board with two of my colleagues in uh, 2001, and, and we had a seven-member board, so the other four got off in 2003. So by 2004, Seattle Public Schools had an entirely new school board. By 2008, they had hired three superintendents that had a strike and had a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And since 2004, Seattle Public Schools has had eight superintendents, one of which has just been recently hired. They've had three or four strikes. They are now $130 million in debt, and it is a mess. And Seattle Public Schools today are probably no better and probably worse than they were in 1990. And what's so disturbing about that is that that is not unique to Seattle. Uh, Every city in the country that's tried to change their schools has has always gone back to the status quo. And so my learning was that the entity of change is not the urban district, and getting inside the district can help, but it's not sustainable. So the entity of change is the state. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wrote my book is because that was a major learning, and I've written a book on how to change state law and fix our schools. Mm-hmm. Long answer. Yeah, <laughs> no, no problem. Yeah, you write uh, in the book that that today, just as in decades past, the public school system only effectively educates roughly about 25 to 30 percent of students. And there's another 45 to 50 percent that graduate, but they graduate with limited skills that don't really prepare them for the adult world. Um, Uh Certainly not for college and probably not for any sort of employment. And then there's another 20 to 25 percent that just drop out uh, completely of of the school system before, you know, before 12th grade. And that, yeah. but but that that this performance, uh, um, that this performance of the public school system, that's just basically baked into the system. It's a it's it's 
it's a design feature. It's not a it's not a bug of the system. I mean, that's just the the the, the outcome uh, will not change with this system. And as you mentioned, you know, as you sort of mentioned, the 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 good things that happen in the system happen really in spite of the system, not because of the system. As you mentioned, the the all the uh, charismatic uh, principles, the effective right. principles, they can create effect uh you know quality schools but to do so they have to break a lot of you know bend a lot of rules and break a lot of rules to get the, uh the school where they want it to, to be right but uh right. so basically this this the public school system as it is now uh it's not really going to get much better than this ever again and that's no. just that's just the feature of the system that's the way it's built right well the several reasons for that. Number one, the system is, was never, I would argue, was never set up to effectively educate every child and then has successfully not done so for 120 years. And the reason for that is because it's a one-size-fits-all system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we put 25 kids in the classroom with one teacher teaching one way uh, for one length of time, and some of the kids get it, and some of the kids don't, and it really doesn't matter. Um, there's no there's no accountability built into the system for academic achievement. You, you know, we do all kinds of testing and all kinds of this and that, but nothing matters. No one gets fired. There's no accountability for performance. And there's no accountability for how you spend the money. Um, and so what happens is uh, uh, those children who uh, uh, the teacher reaches in the classroom are generally the children who come from secure homes and have had a fairly good upbringing and continue to have learning experiences outside the classroom that go beyond uh, the regular curriculum. And these children are, are, are prepared to learn, they want to learn, and uh, if they get a good teacher, they will learn. Um, but uh, the, uh, the other thing in the system, uh, and this is largely, I would attribute to uh, the unionization of the system. Uh, there's no accountability for performance in the system. And so as a consequence, uh, and there's no ability to fire people. Uh, uh, I had one principal in Seattle who was really a truly outstanding principal, one of our best, uh, tell me one time he had he'd been a principal for 11 years, and he had tried to fire seven teachers during that 11-year period, and he had failed all seven times. Um, and so he gave up. And what he tended to do was make, try to make their life miserable in his school, so they voluntarily left and went to some other school to be mediocre someplace else. Um, but that's the way the system operates today. And, and so um, we'll never effectively educate every child if we don't change the system. And that's what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so you say to fundamentally change the system, uh, as you said before, this is something that, like I said, the entity of change that you mentioned, it's not going to be the school. It's not going to be the district, certainly not going to be the federal government. It's going to have to come from the state government and that to change right. the system. We're going to have to start with the laws. Uh, right. so what, uh, what do you mean? What, uh, kind of proposals are you thinking of that are going to, uh, Transform things. Well, if if you think about state, the state, the state rarely is in control. They 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 control most of the money uh, in almost every state. The, the state is the primary funder of schools. 
Um, they control uh, who can teach uh, through certification laws. Uh, so in every state of the nation, you have to be certified to be a teacher and you have to be certified to be a principal. And in 45 of the 50 states, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to be certified to be a superintendent. So, uh, and the only place you can become certified is in an education school. Mm -hmm. And so, um, education schools have a monopoly over the supply of human capital that's allowed to go into our school systems. Um, and that monopoly has created mediocrity, I would argue, because there are now over 2,000 uh, institutions that grant teaching certificates in the United States. I, I saw, spectrum, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I saw there's a couple things years ago on education uh, majors in colleges and education schools and colleges. And um, I forget where I read it, but I saw it in a couple different places that essentially uh, education majors, the, the, the college students that end up choosing education majors and getting their degrees in education. Um, they are the students that enter colleges with the lowest uh, the test scores, like SAT scores of their cohort. Yes. But they yes. graduate uh, with the highest, G <laughs> the highest GPA of uh, any, uh, any of their, <laughs> their peers in college. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, there's no criteria of selection. I mean, the only requirement to become a teacher in this country is that you have been a high school, you have a high school diploma, which may or may not mean you learned anything yet, uh, and you have money for tuition. Um, if you have those two criteria, I guarantee you, you can become a teacher. Um, no other country of consequence handles education that way. And uh, uh, education colleges uh, have become cash cows for universities. Um, they're the easiest college to enter. They're the cheapest student to educate. And there is no accountability for performance into that. I mean, you can get your certificate, and if there's a demand for teachers, you'll get hired. And if there's no demand, you won't. But um, they, the, the criteria, the professors and, and, uh, and the curriculum, it's just, to many, in many cases, it's garbage. Yeah, what, um, I, what I've noticed about education majors that I've run into in my life, uh, you know, teachers, that the education majors, they have, they know pedagogy, like they know how to teach things, but they don't have a lot of mastery of <laughs> of any sort of subject because they didn't have to, you know, like they don't have, really right. have a mastery of English or mathematics or or science or history or, you know, physical science or biological science or anything like that. Um, and yeah. then it seems to me that the more effective teacher, um, whether or not they have an advanced degree or whatever, but it's, they have a background um, in an actual uh, field rather than in just quote unquote education. Like they have a background in math or they have a background in uh, well, in English or something like that. Those seem to be the more uh, effective teachers. Well, yeah, and you, you remember in your college, when you had a professor that had some private sector experience, they were one of the best teachers you had. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, what happens in education today is we take 18-year-olds and we put them through four years of an education college, and then we put them in a classroom, and they can stay there for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they will never experience the meaning the, the outside world, and the, so they have no no uh, frame of reference, um, and uh, uh, in no other country do we do it that way. In virtually every other country of consequence, a teacher has to have a college degree uh, before they enter education, and um, and then in in the really high performing countries. The teacher has to have majored in the subject they want to teach. You know what a concept that is, right? Um, but that's 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 missing in the United States. And so you have, you know, you hear the stories about football coaches teaching math, and you 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 have all kinds of people who are are one lesson ahead of their students in terms of knowledge about the subject they're teaching. Uh, it, it's uh, and and I, don't get me wrong, we have some wonderfully competent teachers out there and we have wonderful competent principals Mm -hmm. but they are not the norm no they are the exception it's like any other uh, profession some people are really good most people are you know fair to midland and then there's a you know bottom portion that just are terrible uh but the difference is like in the in the private sector or something if you're terrible at your job um you're going to be let go Eventually, yeah. I mean, at some point, you're going to be but, removed, right? Yeah. But with uh, with you know with the teachers unions and the uh, contracts that the districts have now with uh, a lot of these places and and uh, the states have with uh, you know in a lot of places you can get tenure as a teacher after three or four or five three. years, and three then years. basically mostly three years. Yeah, yeah, and then basically once you get tenure, uh, you're practically unfireable, you know, unless you like you know, diddle a kid or something like that, or, uh, you know what I mean? But you have to do something extremely egregious, uh, to be fired and, and being a terrible teacher. I mean, just not, uh, being a teacher that doesn't get any results, uh, that the students don't come out any better from being in your classroom. That is not a reason, uh, a a fireable defense, (laughs) In no. a lot of cases, in most no. in most states, uh, in in the public school system, and that's the problem. Right. Oh, it's an enormous problem. There's no accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't run an organization without accountability, and the the entire public education institute institution is devoid of con- accountability, devoid of accountability for uh, performance in terms of the education of children, and devoid of accountability for the effective use of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a consequence, uh, we're constantly told that more money is the requirement for us to improve our schools, and the answer is that that is not the case because oh, uh, we've been doing it. We've been doing it for decades, and it's made no difference, and it won't make any difference. Uh, the, the system is obsolete, and unless and until we change it, we we're stuck. So that was my. That's why my book was written. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought this was interesting. This chapter. Uh, what is the mission? Of a school, in your opinion. Well, that's a there's a whole chapter devoted to that <laughs> yep. question. Um, it's an interesting question because when I was out, you know, when I was traveling around the country, uh, you know, I'm a business guy, so you know, I figure, you know, educators would know exactly what they're trying to do, and they would spend spend their day trying to do it. So, um, you know, in most businesses, you have a mission statement of some sort. Um, so I would ask educators, okay, what, what's the mission of school? Tell me why, what are, what are you about? And of course, 99% of them said, uh, 
the education of children, of course. And I said, okay, uh, what does Obviously. that mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, and and uh, 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 so we're in, we, we want to we want to educate children. And I said, okay, what's describe an educated child? Well, nobody could describe an educated child. In fact, to this day, there's no description anywhere in literature, in law, as to what it means to be educated as a, as a high school graduate. The only requirement to graduate in high school is that you've earned a certain number of credits. It doesn't mean you learned anything, but uh, there's no measure of learning anywhere. Um, but anyhow, so I asked this question, and uh, I'll never forget this. One lady in Texas told me that she thought the mission of a school was to deliver the curriculum to the children of the state of Texas. State, the state curriculum, that was the mission. And I said, oh, that's an interesting comment. Um, but at any rate, um, when, when you dig into it, um, the first thing you have to figure out is, you know, what is an educated child? How would you describe an educated child? And uh, I came up with the notion that an educated child is someone who has the capacity to become a responsible citizen. And by that, I mean it's a person that has enough education of reading, writing, and arithmetic to live a normal, healthy life in today's economy and has the wherewithal to take care of himself or herself and uh, their family and earn a decent living and won't be dependent upon the, the government for their sustenance. Um, and knows how our system works, knows has learned about the economy, learned about... Uh, our constitution and a form of government knows how to vote and will exercise that right. In other words, you know, all of the steps that would become qualified to be, quote, a responsible citizen. That's one thing. The next thing is uh, who's responsible for the education of a child? And if you start looking into our existing education system, what you find is that between the time a child is born and the child turns 18, they will have spent 90% of their time someplace other than school. Hmm. In other words, uh, school is not the, the essence of the, where a child gets educated. The child's primary education occurs outside of school, particularly in the home. And so the primary responsibility for the education of a child, in my mind, rests with the parents or guardians, not the school. And so uh, if you go down that route, then what it says is schools work for parents, that parents are the customer of schools. And so if you want to meet the requirements of, of the parents, the school has to develop itself into an uh, institution that parents want their child to attend. Um, and so when you get into the notion of the parents, the customer, the school is the vehicle, and the goal is a responsible citizen, then the mission of a school becomes the following, to serve as the primary partner with parents in the total development of their child into a responsible citizen. That, in my mind, is the mission of a school. All right, very nice. And, um, uh, and I've never heard a mission described anywhere, anywhere in literature, anywhere in the United States. There's, I think that's the only mission statement out there. Well, actually, no, I, I actually looked this up so because uh, I was interested because my, my son is uh, three and a half. Um, so, oh, nec okay. so next year he's going to start uh, preschool, preschool and then kindergarten mm -hmm. uh, at, uh, at my uh, local uh, Catholic school uh, down here. 
And I was like, well, let me, um, I was like, let me go on the website and see if they actually have like a mission statement at the school. And, um, I was actually surprised they have like a whole page, uh, profile of a grad, uh, of a graduate at graduation. So we, the parents and teachers of Santa, I won't say the school, uh, envision each graduate of our school to be, uh, a responsible citizen who, and then, um, it has four, it basically has four different, uh, sections. Uh, so responsible citizen, reflective and critical thinker, uh, faith-filled disciple and, uh, healthy and balanced teenager. And then each one has like bullet points. So under a uh, responsible citizen, it has a, a responsible citizen who respects and cares for all life and God's creation, demonstrates accountability to themselves, to God, and to the community, uh, understands their unique talents and challenges and applies that self-awareness in the development of personal goals, uh, continuously develops their basic life skills, social etiquette, and ability to adapt to change, and uh, stands up to peer pressure, makes good choices with help from God, family, and community. And there's all, I mean, it's a very like detailed um yeah uh, mission statement so i was i was actually uh, pleasantly surprised <laughs> when i went to look to see right. uh you know um uh that they actually had something that uh you know i mean that specific not just not just boilerplate but uh you know uh very detailed right right yeah. now i i and I, I think you will find most private schools have a mission statement mm. and uh uh yeah, sure. Um, most private schools have a mission statement. Most public schools do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons they have to do that, the private schools have long, long ago figured out that the parent is the customer. Sure. You know, the parent is the one who pays the tuition. It's the parent is the one who selects the school. So if you want to, if you want to fill your school up with kids, with students, you better cater to the parent community and just give them what they want. Um, but public schools have never had to do that, and so they don't do it. Right. Now, uh, you said you're a fan of school choice. You're a fan of uh, mm-hmm. education savings accounts and vouchers and uh, all, mm-hmm. and charter schools. And uh, mm-hmm. but you don't think, uh, and I'm pretty much in agreement with you on this. You don't think that they're they're going to be some sort of uh, you know some sort of silver bullet solution to you know all the problems no. that plague the. Uh, uh, our school system. Uh, so, no, um, I don't. And the uh, reason I don't is, well, I look at charter schools. Uh, we've had charter schools now for 30 years, um, and they are educating less than 10% of our children so far. Um, education savings account put the put the uh, put the power in the hands of the parents, which is where it should be. So you can't argue. You know, to me, it's basic education mm-hmm. savings accounts. Um, vouchers, whatever you want to call them. The parents should have control over where their child goes to school, mm-hmm. and that control comes with the money. And so, in my mind, you, you, every state should give parents uh, money for their children's education to let them spend anywhere they want. Uh, you know, we don't tell food stamp recipients which grocery store to go to. Right. Uh, we shouldn't tell parents which school to go to. Um, but uh, having said that, uh, one of the things you have to recognize, and most states are not doing this, uh, and that is that uh, some children cost a whole lot more to educate than other children. And uh, so you can't have a one-size-fits-all funding system any more than you can have a one-size-fits-all education system. And so um, in Seattle, when we put in choice and changed the funding model, we, we created what was called a weighted student formula. 
And um, under that scenario, the cert- certain types of children uh, were given more money uh, to spend on their education. For example, a child, let's say your child is uh, speaks English as a second language, not mm-hmm. their primary tongue. Well, that, that child is more difficult to educate than somebody who speaks English as their primary tongue. Sure. Um, a child who's dyslexic and has ADHD is a different educational challenge. Um, and people with disabilities, you know, can't hear or you're blind or whatever. You know, some children are, and so on. If you give everybody the same amount of money to spend on education, then what's going to happen is schools are going to cater to the easiest to educate children hmm. and leave the others behind. And so we recognize that. And in Seattle, when we put in the weighted student formula um, and put in choice, then what happened was we basically created what I would call a free market economy inside the public education system. Because in Seattle, when we did this, uh, the amount of money that a principal and staff received for their school was a function of both the number and the type of children who elected to show up. And so uh, now you're in a competitive business uh, and now you better shape up and get, you know, you better produce results or people aren't gonna come. And that's exactly the way it should operate in my mind. And uh, it was transformational. It was a game changer. Mm. See, I think I'm a little bit more bullish on, um, you know, you said that what's going to happen is the the harder to educate kids are going to be sort of left behind uh, the system. But I, I feel like um, we're going to get to a point once the dust sort of all settles on uh, these school choice programs and once they sort of get implemented on a on a big scale like on a statewide scale in a lot of these places that you're going to see entrepreneurs um you know coming up with like hey you know uh let's try this uh, school that's just going to cater to uh specifically with kids with learning disabilities and uh we're going to figure out how to do this like on this budget and um or uh or uh, just that there's going to be people are going to be trying out uh I think it's going to transform. You're not going to see, um, like you said, just the standard 20 to 25 kids in a class. You know, two, you know, two grades, uh, two classes per grade, et cetera. You're gonna, you're gonna see people uh, using this in very novel, unique ways that are going to. uh, It's going to be sort of more bespoke, uh, tailored, individually tailored education. Uh, delivery systems. I mean, they'll still be like they'll be schools, but they're not going to look like you know a public school or even a, a you know a parochial school or a private school. Um, they're going to be smaller, sort of micro schools, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think it'll be a lot of uh, uh, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what works and what doesn't. And it's going to take a while for all the dust to settle on that too. But I think in, you know, another 15, 20 years, we're going to see, I think the school system is going to look radically different um, in these states that have uh, universal school choice than it is, you know, in these other states. I couldn't agree with you more. I think what's going to happen is you'll see entrepreneurs and private schools adjusting to this new model or this new opportunity. Uh, But public schools, unless you change state law, won't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... uh, it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen outside the public system unless state right. law changes. Well, we we have seen there yeah. there there has been um, 
uh, quite a bit of scientific literature <clears throat> already on, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, the public school, public schools that have more competition uh, from private schooling in that area, uh, and especially uh, from private schooling that has, uh, or, or in states that have school choice, um, the public schools have become more reactive uh, to this just well, because they because they right because <laughs> they have to because if they don't they're going to lose sure. all their students and that has led the public schools uh, in these areas uh, you know increasing uh, you've seen increases in test scores increases in attainment um, you know uh, uh, that sort of increases in um, you know the number of students that are you know going on and, and moving uh, to either a, a community college or a four-year you know college or university. So it is having, I mean, it's a small effect, but I mean, it is having an effect already in some of these states. It is, and uh, and, and 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 you know, competition improves everybody, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you know, more competition we have, the better off we'll be. But having said that, um, there's a lot of areas in the country where there are no private schools and oh, sure. there are no entrepreneurs, and there's one school in the, in the community and quite right. frankly the school is the largest employer in sure. the community and uh, so even with total choice and even with ESAs um, there's there's a group of parents out there that are going to have no choice uh, and that's why I still maintain uh, we have to change state law we have to improve the public school system um, in order to effectively educate all the children mm. and uh, so uh, I, I agree with you. ESAs are wonderful. Choice is wonderful. Uh, charter schools are good. Charter schools are a way to get around public schools. But uh, the bottom line, ultimately, if we if we're going to be serious about the totality of our children, uh, we need to fix the public education system. Yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit about school boards too, uh, because you were a school board <laughs> veteran. Um, but you think. Um, you think that we should actually eliminate elected school boards, and uh, so what are what are some well, of the problems? Not, not necessarily uh, all school boards, but in urban systems, what has happened, Tim, is we've made it in this country. We've made it so unattractive to run for public office that uh, really talented, gifted people are choosing not to do it, and this is particularly true for school boards. And uh, so in urban systems, instead of getting the most highly qualified, talented people on school boards, which, what you end up getting uh, in many cases are uh, a potpourri, if you will, of uh, people who are uh, either single-issue fanatics, social justice warriors, uh, or union sympathizers. You know, there, there's, there's these uh, social activists, and this is the kind of people that run for school boards. Now, mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with these people, but they're not the kind of people you want running your, your schools. And here in Seattle, our school system is a $1.2 billion enterprise. Well, that's not a PTA meeting. You know, yeah. And, and uh, you need talented, gifted people on a school board if you want anything of meaning to, have, to, to occur. And uh, if you're the superintendent and you have this this crazy board to deal with how are you going to get anything done and um, and so that happens throughout the country in urban particularly in urban systems so my feeling is that until we make running for office a whole, more, a whole lot more attractive maybe what we should think about particularly in urban systems is an appointed school board 
Um, you know, one of the things that, if, you know, if I were mayor of Seattle, I'd be very upset that I had absolutely no authority or control over the schools. And the reason I'd be very upset about that is because families and children are what makes a city healthy. And a health of a city is dependent upon the quality of its schools. And if you're the mayor and have no control over that, then, then how can you be an effective mayor? Um, and uh, so in my mind, one of the suggestions I make in the book is either, either we go to appointed school boards and urban systems or even more radically get rid of them all together and let the superintendent be on the mayor's uh, uh, cabinet like the chief of police and uh, the mm. fire chief and the park department chief and so forth. Um, yeah. Because schools, schools are the most important institution in any city. And in every city in the country, the, the mayor has no control over it. Yeah, I, I like the idea in theory, but I feel like in you know the places where it would really need to matter most, like Chicago or uh, New York or any one of these very uh, heavily heavily unionized uh, blue cities, that mm-hmm. you know, say the school board's not elected and it's just the mayor picks the school board or whoever. Um, that the mayor is most likely going to be a Democrat who's most likely had a lot of money put in their campaigns by uh, the, the teachers unions who uh, are basically the biggest uh, um, advocacy groups in the country that spend the most money of any uh, special interests in the country by far, mm-hmm. the teachers unions. By far. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, so they're going to spend money, uh, you know, getting these democratic <laughs> mayors and everything elected. So when the mayor is going to go to uh, name the school board, well, the union is sure as hell going to have uh, a heavy thumb on uh, the mayor uh, to elect uh, people that are, you know, if not union sycophants, that, that are, you know, uh, uh, st- are, that at least will sympathizers. not... Sympathizers. Sympathizers, yeah. right. So right. I don't... I mean, I could see that working in uh, maybe, you know, cities that are a little bit more purple uh, in their in their makeup well, of their. But yeah, I I yeah, think I like agree. in I think like in Chicago, say for example, um, that you know, <laughs> there's never there's not going to be an appetite uh, from any mayor to uh, to piss off uh, the union in that in that way. No, but uh, absolutely, but you you know. If you have a lousy mayor, you're going to get a lousy school board. But today you can have an outstanding mayor and get a lousy school board. Sure. Um, so it, to me, it's, you know, you get what you, you know, what the voters want is what right. they're going to get. True. But, uh, Very true. Even, a, even, a, even an incompetent mayor is unlikely to appoint incompetent people to the school system. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, somebody creating a school board that's comparable to the ones we now see uh, in most cities. I, I can guarantee you that the, the current mayor in the city of Seattle um, would absolutely not appoint a single one of the seven members that are currently on the board. Uh, I can guarantee you. Yeah. Um, and and he's beholden to the education uh, union. But, mm. uh, uh, you know, if you're serious about fixing the city, you know, I used to when we were when I was a school board, I used to talk to my union colleagues about this. And I'd say I'd say to them, you know, we we have to quit being on opposite sides of the table. And the reason I said that is because unions want to maximize dues. 
right. and dues income. And the only for way for the teachers' union to maximize dues is to maximize the number of teachers. Right. And the only way to have the maximum number of teachers is to create a school system that people want to go to. Now, when I was in school, in high school in Seattle, we had over 100,000 children in the public education system. And the city was 580,000 in, in population. Today, the city's 780,000 in population, and we have 51,000 children in the school system. Now, so that's 50,000 children that are not being taught by the Seattle Education Association members. Okay? Right. So what, what you have is thousands thousands of teachers that are no longer paying dues. So if you want to maximize your dues, Mr. Union or Miss Union, you help me create the finest school system in the country. And I'll guarantee you, you'll have maximum membership and maximum dues. And uh, he bought that. Our, our, our guy bought that. And we ended up having a partnership. And that's mm-hmm. how we got so much done. Are, are the unions... In your opinion, are they the teachers' unions? Are they the main problem here with the the school system? I mean, is it uh, say if every if, say hypothetically if uh, every union teachers' union in the country went away uh, overnight and yeah. the, and the system was still the same? Do you think that's the system without the unions could uh, dramatically improve? Uh, well, with, if you could. If you could get some accountability performance built into the system, it would dramatically change things. So in that regard, uh, unions have created this situation where virtually no one can be fired. And when you Mm -hmm. can't be fired or or evaluated on performance and have it mean anything, uh, then then you have no control. You have no accountability. Um, So I think, um, yeah, I I think it would help for sure. Um, But the fact of the matter is that... uh, you still have to have accountability for how the money is spent, and there's no accountability for that today. Um, so there's there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, uh, I wrote an editorial not long ago about m- monopolies, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the public education system in this country is is has three monopolies inside the system. The system itself is a monopoly mm-hmm. in that you know if you live in a certain neighborhood, you are required to send your child to that neighborhood school unless you have the money to go to private school. Um, That's one monopoly. The second monopoly is the union. They control all of the people and they control virtually the compensation and the calendar and oh, all kinds of stuff. In my book, I don't know if you noticed that the back of the book, there's an appendix, which is the table of contents for the Seattle union contract. And it's it's 222 pages long, the, the contract. I mean, it, it is you, you won't believe the stuff that's in there that the union has a require has a control over. Oh sure. Uh, but it's all it's all there. And then the 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 second monopoly is um, uh, well, the second monopoly is the union. The third monopoly are education colleges because they have a monopoly over the supply of human capital. And so you you know. I can think of no other organization in the country that is plagued with three monopolies, but the public schools are. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I've already kept you longer than I said I was going to keep you, but I want to get to a couple more things if you have if you have time. Okay. Just, um, uh, because you uh, have a large chunk of the book um, 
talking about uh, not just the system itself, but how we're going to teach kids uh, going forward and your um, your recommendations for what we should do, which uh, which includes uh, you know switching to more individualized learning than uh, group learning, um, moving from a you know the the, the seat based system or you know the time based system and moving from that to an achievement based system and um, uh, you know then uh, uh, you also think that kids should be going to school uh, longer uh, not just you know a longer school year um, but also longer uh, a little bit longer during the day each day every single day um, and this, this, these are all part of your, um, I guess, sort of your prescription to, to, to fix or, or to help fix this, uh, the obsolescence of the school system. Right. Well, uh, again, it goes back to one size fits all, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have a 180-day school year. They're trying to reduce it. Um, we have a six-hour day. It's been the same way for 120 years. Um, you know, the... And then if you teach every child the same way for the same length of time you, and expect the same outcome, it's, it's, you know, it just doesn't work. And so um, if you're in the third grade, but you're reading at the fifth grade level, um, in my mind, you should be in the fifth grade. But, uh, you know, one of my recommendations is get rid of grades, uh, mm -hmm. go to levels. And so if you're reading at uh, level five, you're in a level five reading group. And if you're reading at level one, you're in a level one reading group, regardless of what your age is. But today, if you're eight years old, you're in the third grade and you're in the third grade for the entire year. And you could be reading at the fifth grade level and you could be doing math at the you know, fourth grade level. You could be doing other stuff at a first grade level. Doesn't matter. You're going to be in that third grade for the entire year. And so really smart students get turned off, really poor students get turned off as well. They give up and, uh, and then it, 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 it destroys the learning almost for everybody except those right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so to me, it, it just doesn't work and it's never worked and it will never work. But we've never, ever had the notion that every child should be well educated. I mean, it, as a country, we just... It apparently is not I think people think that's happening but it's not happening and it has never happened yeah I someone pointed this out a couple of weeks ago and I'd never thought about it that way but uh, the school system is really the only time in your life will where you will be grouped together with people uh, uh, peers of exactly like the same age uh, and right. have to spend all time, time. Based. yeah right yeah. and just uh, to spend uh, so it's not very we, we like we don't expect that like anywhere else in you know uh, in anything else so yeah. why do we think that that's necessary uh, yeah. for for schools yeah, yeah. well it's, it's, it's the way it's been set up for a hundred you know and that's that's the other problem Tim you know one of the things we're talking about here is is uh, trying to change the system but we also need to recognize and this is a big issue uh, that public education system and the school calendar are part and parcel of the American culture. Mm -hmm. And um, to modify that is going to be a heavy lift. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think you can do it from the top down. I don't think you can dictate change to schools. So my feeling is that 
you you change state laws so that innovation can occur, but you don't dictate the innovation and you let it occur from the ground up. Um, and so that the cultural change evolves, it's not mandated, evolves. Mm. And uh, I, th- I think once parents decide that it's more important for their children to be well-educated than it is for them to have a summer break of three months, uh, then we can get something done. But it's, if, if, if the state said we're going we're gonna to increase the school year to 215 days, uh, there, would be, there would be a rebellion. <laughs> well, the, the, the teachers would ask for uh, the unions of like, well, if we're going to increase, we better increase our pay. Oh, yeah. And I, I yeah. and I, I think they have a point. Um, one of the things that always annoyed me about like the teacher pay thing is, I mean, I'm all for giving, I'm all for giving the best. Like, if you're a good teacher, I'm all for giving you more money. Uh, but I'm not just going to give every single teacher, you know. Uh, that's, you're that's right. right. And, and especially since, yeah, I mean, you, the teachers do get like three months off a year, you know, like there's three months, they're not in the classroom. So it's not say in the book that teachers are not underpaid. They're underemployed. Yeah. Right. Like they, I mean, it's an employment issue, not a compensation issue. Right. Like if you want to earn, you know, full-time job money, then, you know, you got to work full-time hours. Um, right. Right. But, uh, but anyway, but no, it's just, um, to your point about the cultural, uh, implication of it, like it's just, it, it, you see it uh, right now in in something in a place like Texas uh, that cannot get um, uh, a school choice program passed. They they just can't get it done in Texas, even as uh, you know, even as as bullish as Republicans are on uh, on school choice, and as red as Texas is, they can't get it done. And basic a, a big part of the reason is. Uh, football <laughs> is, is uh, mm-hmm. high school and grade school football. They don't. It's such a it's such a part of the culture uh, down there that they don't. I mean, literally, like they just don't want to mess with that in any sort of way. Uh, so if they they're afraid that if there's a school choice program, uh, you know, gets passed in Texas, that it's gonna you know it's gonna transform. Texas high school football. I mean, I was literally just reading an op-ed uh, from an academic, uh, some uh, some teacher at some university in Texas. I can't remember which one. He wrote an op-ed in one of the, the papers down there. Uh, but, I mean, he's opposed to uh, school choice for other ideological reasons. Uh, but he was basically making the point in the, in the op-ed. He's like, hey, you like high school football in all these rural communities in Texas? Uh, if you get school choice, that's the end of your uh, that's the end of your little high school program, you know, because it's going to transform everything, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And uh, but yeah. and the other thing is too, just um, as you mentioned before, a lot of these small towns that the the school is the big employer, but not only that, uh, it's in a lot of these very in these small rural towns. I mean, not just in Texas, but in in pretty much anywhere you go, uh, the school is really the public the local public school is really like the heart of the community you know outside mm-hmm. of like the, the exactly. local church or something like that but it's like you know these are the this is the school that you know three generations of the same family have gone to and so it's or or even longer or something like that uh, and so there's this um you know this continuity that people have uh you know these memories associated with it and uh you know every community event even if it's not school related is sort of held at the school in the auditorium, you know, or at the gym or something like that. 
Um, mm -hmm. So to get people to buy, the rural people to buy in um, on uh, on school choice is going. It's going to be a heavy lift because they just. It's yep. because it's 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 not <laughs> just um, it's not basically it's you're not just adding new schools into this into this town you're basically transforming its identity right so that's a big well, that's a big issue well you could but you know choice is not going to affect schools like that necessarily because there is no choice near near term at least there's no other building for a school to be housed in. Um, but um, I can't remember his name. It's just bl I'm blanking out. But uh, back in the early '90s, he ran for president against Bush one. I can't even. Um, well, I can't even remember. Anyhow, he. Uh, uh, no, um, he was Texas billionaire. Oh, uh, uh, Ross Perot. Perot, yeah. Ra Ross Perot. Uh, I he was chairman of a, a committee in Texas designed to help improve education there. Mm -hmm. And one of his recommendations from his committee was that uh, uh, every athlete had to have a 2.0 grade point average in order to play athletics. Mm -hmm. And the state came unglued. <laughs> and uh, I talked to him about it, and he said, you won't believe who were the most vociferous about this issue. And I said, who was that? He says it was the mothers of cheerleaders. <laughs> okay. That tells you how Friday night lights. Are right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just right. I mean, cause there's, yeah. I mean, there's just you know, Texas. I mean, you would think uh, just based on the composition of its electorate, I mean, just uh, how it votes that you would, it would be like Florida. Uh, it would be like a school choice leader that they'd have, you know, yeah. already have hundreds yeah. of thousands of kids in a program and then to be moving to universal programs or something like that. But they can't get, they can't get the smallest school choice program off the ground there just because of that issue. No. And, uh, and it's really a false reason that, you know, of course. because the, the unions have said you're going to destroy your football, but that's not going to happen. What's right. going to happen is there won't be any choice in these small communities in any event and for a while. Sure. Uh, but there's no law that says that kids can't play in the same football field, you know, or a famed football game or team. Um, we have all kinds of examples where kids uh, in running start, for example, uh, go to a community college for certain courses, but they stay in their high school for graduation and for certain other courses. Mm -hmm. I, uh, this could happen. This yeah, could I, happen. I, think, I think the argument the academic made is what's going to happen if there's school choice is that there are going to be some, you know, uh, greedy uh, rich people that are going to come in and they're going to start these sort of like athletic, these schools that are just like athletic academies right where they're just gonna uh -huh. like, where they're just gonna poach all like the best right. athletes from all these little all these other schools and bring them to one school and they're going to create this these powerhouse athletic programs that are going to get these kids you know uh you know that are uh, going to dominate all you know the the little local school districts and you know and, and suck away all the best students and uh that sort of thing uh, which yeah. very well may happen, you know. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if <laughs> if that didn't happen. Well, it but, could happen. Yeah. But as a parent, now you're are you going to drive your kid 100 miles every day to go to this school, or are they going to become uh, you know residential academies? There's all kinds of right. issues related. Oh yeah, sure. But I mean, but it, but it, but if one of these, if an administrator or coach at the school says, you know, I'd like your school uh, student to come here, your son to come here, 
or your daughter to come here. And if, and by getting into this program, I guarantee you uh, that we will place them in in, a, in, a, in an athletic program at one of the, you know, they will get a scholarship to some college uh, right. somewhere. Um, right. You know, even if the school is like a boarding school, I would think a lot of parents probably would if, if you're guaranteeing me that my kid's going to get a free ride to you know to college or, and i think a lot of parents would make that trade maybe i know. think i think they would too and and you know that's uh i'm not sure anybody could guarantee it but they could say right. they could guarantee sure, it. right there's no you know there are right. no guarantees but but uh no i i think that's quite possible and that that could uh could hurt local schools but but that could help the kids. So Absolutely, you, know, you right. have to decide. You have to decide what your what your goals are. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the, that's the whole perverse thing. It's like, okay, we're uh, <laughs> it's you know we're more concerned about like the the football program than the actual education. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just uh, um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, anyway. that's very true. That's yeah. very true. And this is where this is where it gets really sticky is because a lot of parents are more interested in how their child performs on the field than they are of mm-hmm. how they perform in the classroom. Yes. Very and uh, uh, that's a shame, but that's a reality. Uh, but doesn't mean it's right. And we need to create situations where uh, kids can do both. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, um, we've already gone over an hour doing this. Like I said, I catch it <laughs> longer than I, <laughs> I told you I was going to keep you. Uh, so let's just, uh, I guess we'll just wrap it up uh, back to the book which is, again, the title is Every School, One Citizen's Guide to Transforming Education. Um, and uh, just like to ask you sort of an exit question. Um, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of uh, this book? Or what's the one thing you'd want a reader to taking away from, from having read it? Uh, well, two, twofold, I guess. Sure. Number one help your legislators understand what laws need to be changed in order to create innovation opportunities in schools. And then secondly, um, uh, work hard to, with your school board and your superintendent to, um, to encourage innovation to occur, to change, to encourage change. So they don't, so they're not scared to to try things because a lot of, a lot of, Superintendents and principals are scared to try anything new because they're afraid the parent committee won't like it. And uh, uh, and but the 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 opportunity to do something uh, do something new is is limited because of state law. So Hmm. the place the first place to start is with the legislators for sure. Okay, great. Well, uh, while we're here, uh, before we go, is there anything else other than the book uh, you want to plug? Any Anything you think people should know about? Well, I think I I I think the uh, the opportunity to improve to improve our schools is 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 there for everybody, and it's necessary. And uh, I I quite frankly think it's the most important issue facing us as a nation today. And so, in my mind, the most important thing we can do as citizens to help improve our education system for our children. And uh, I hope my book will be at least somewhat of a recipe on how to do that. All right, great. Well, uh, again, uh, that book is Every School, uh, One Citizen's Guide to Transforming Education. There's a uh, an updated version out 
um, that you'll be able to find on Amazon and everywhere else that includes a, a, a game plan, uh, you know, how to how to approach this uh, from the state level. And uh, so that's pretty neat. And it's a very... Um, um, <laughs> yeah, all right. So, oh, no problem. But it's a, a very uh, uh, fascinating book. Uh, you can tell um, you've thought a lot about this problem uh, and you have uh, you bring a unique perspective uh, to it from your your backstory uh, as an entrepreneur and as a you know guy running a uh, you know a, a business on the on the New York Stock Exchange and all that and then going and then going on to the uh, uh, school board there in Seattle so uh, lots of lots of good stuff in there um, for people to uh, check out, I highly, highly recommend the book. Every school, uh, one citizen's guide to transforming education, and the author again, Mr. Donald Neil Nielsen. So, uh, Mr. Nielsen, uh, Don, uh, thank you so, so much again for uh, coming on the podcast and talking uh, public education with us and uh, telling us about your book. Well, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, thank you. <laughs>